0: As you remember, my friends, at our last meeting, we began to analyze the epistle of our Lord to the Bishop of Ephesus, to the Angel of Ephesus, and he praises the Angel of Ephesus. He tells him that he knows his works, his labors, and his patience. Nevertheless, the Lord says, I have something against you, that you have left your first love. First of all, we notice this most pedagogical element used by our Lord, in nearly all of these epistles, praise followed by correction, praise the strong points of his bishops, he praises his labors, his patience, his works against the heretics, but he also has a complaint and he will bring it up, he'll bring up the weak point of this congregation and it seems to be very important because this correction is followed by the threat of a very serious punishment. So I have something against you. You have left your first love. Your initial burning love is cooling off. What happened here? Something that happens to all of us. And as we stated earlier, these epistles represent different folds of the one Catholic Church. They represent qualities and virtues of the faithful clergy and lay people. And all of us can discover ourselves and conceptualize our inner strengths and weaknesses. So the Bishop of Ephesus focused most of his energy to the area which Christ himself points out, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So the bishop of Ephesus worked over time to cleanse the church from evildoers and especially heretical teachers. And somehow this became the main focus, the main preoccupation rather, of the church of Ephesus, the anti-heretical struggle. But in the process, something else was overlooked. What was overlooked was the love for the Lord Jesus. Jesus. My friends, did it ever occur to you that this happens very often in our church? We only need to throw a glance around us and we will see this. We often focus a great deal and spend a tremendous amount of time on apologetics to learn to counter, to counterattack the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, when they come to our door, for instance, or to learn and defend against New Agers or some other occultic movements. We often notice some of our faithful who exert a great deal of effort against the heretical movements, however, their own spiritual life is ignored and overlooked. I'm very much afraid that this could be the case with a number of people here in our audience who fight against evil, against false faiths, however, they fail to develop their own spirituality. I have noticed this to be the reality in many of our today's Christians and I'm being very sincere in saying this, and we need to become especially watchful and take up the necessary measures to correct this. You come to report to me your endeavors against the unorthodox, but your own spiritual life is not well taken care of. There's a certain fickleness. We need to understand that the love that was forsaken, and the Lord says you left your first love this love is not meant to be exhausted in orthodoxia, true faith only, but in orthopraxia, true works as well. We cannot reduce our faith to the chasing of the heretics, but I must especially focus on how I live. What is needed It's something that was lacking from the bishop and the church of Ephesus this very special ascent of the loving heart towards God. Many times we notice this in people who are very active in the life of the parish, to lack the spiritual ascent. And vice versa, people who have these spiritual ascents, they do not have much involvement. They don't seek any involvement. They keep to themselves. The Lord reproves the one and the other. We will see at another epistle that he will reproach the church which allowed heretics to coexist with it. So both of these are necessary. We must not gravitate towards one sector, but we must work in all the areas of our spiritual life. We will work to defend our faith, but we will not ignore our own spiritual development. I cannot feel content just because I'm active in the fight against the heretics, and since I'm involved In the anti-heretical movement, uh, this is an indication that I am doing well spiritually. And here, I will add a translator's note. In the last 25 years, the Jehovah Witnesses have been converting entire villages in Greece, especially where the priest was illiterate or needing to work in the fields all day. Most village priests in Greece work 10 hours in their farms and they still keep up with their services. The catastrophic Jehovah Witnesses dressed in sheep's clothing would be going door to door during the day. To counteract this threat, Orthodox brothers and sisters would volunteer to warn, strengthen, and visit and follow the heretics to minimize and neutralize their damage. The spiritual centers would organize lay people to do this daily. End of translator's note. Again, all this is certainly helpful, but this cannot be the extent of someone's spiritual life. To confess orthodoxy only does not mean salvation. What happens to orthopraxia? The phrase, I have this against you, shows the complaint of Jesus, which is the cooling off of the first love. What is this first love? The enthusiasm, the zeal, the burning of the heart, the devotion, the worship of Jesus Christ, which we usually find in the newcomers of the faith. I'm sure you have seen a brand new person in the faith, a newcomer. He comes to know Christ and he's full of fire, full of enthusiasm, full of worship for Christ. He begins to tear when you speak to him about the Lord. He begins to cry. These are tears of the person that makes it to confession for the first time. How many times do we encounter this? We often live this and we feel the pain and we come to love these people when we see them cry during holy confession, when they show a true repentance. In other words, this is the spirit of the total sacrifice that takes over the soul. However, when some time passes by and we have many years in the faith, then this love takes a dive and the result is a dry form worship. Our life enters the mold of the daily routine. There's nothing worse than to reduce spiritual life to a routine and to keep going through the motions. Believe me, the death of the spiritual life is this routine. Today, this routine exists in many areas of our life, our job, our relationships with other people. And this should not be, even though some of these are repeated every day, same movements, same people at work, same lifestyle, same old things. We owe it to ourselves to invent ways to fight this rut. Routine in our lives shows the death of our vitality. Now, how can we improvise a way not to fall in this rut? This is something that can be taught, but each person can also work on this individually. When someone always looks for something to make things interesting, looks for some depth in whatever he does, then he does not become bored to tears, as the saying goes. You may have heard this story about the three stone cutters of a certain foundry. When asked about job satisfaction, the first one cynically said, how would you like breaking stones all day long anyway? The second one said, yes, I'm happy with my job. I make good money, and I can support my family. The third one said, you know, it is so interesting to see that every stone is so different. Not two stones are alike, just like people. These stones have their own characteristics, and I get excited thinking that my stones will be dressing up the walls of a church or the walls of courthouses and schools. I feel like I have my signature on every stone. As you can see from this story, if someone can open the eyes of our God-given creativity and look for the something new, look for something different in everything we do, then we will be putting to death this enemy called rut or routine. And when we expel this rut, we become full of life. We become rejuvenated. This is of great importance in our everyday life, but of paramount importance in our spiritual life. To say I go to church every day, same liturgy every day, vespers, same prayers every day, the same thing every day, the study of the scriptures. I run into the same people every day, greet them and ask them how they are. Now, if I can find something new in all this every day, then this daily routine will not become part of my life. Watch yourselves very carefully from the danger of this routine because we slip into the mode of form worship. We're simply going through the motion. Will to us, if we left our first love, which is life, Variety, interest, excitement, and life itself. Everything that the word life means. If we lose this, woe to us. And this holds true on an individual level and on a national level. We need to bring this up as Greek Orthodox in this country. As members of the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese, we have great reasons for concern. We have fallen at the depths of dipolatria, or habitual transferring of our bodies back and forth from the church every Sunday morning, satisfying our sense of duty without any thirst or hunger for something more. This is very evident in the life of most of our faithful. The spirit has left, the spirit has become extinguished. Even though the Lord commenced, his word says, do not put out the flame of the spirit. This is why we can see that most of our people go to church without having understanding or interest for spirituality. Fasting has lost its meaning for many of our Christians. Most of them think that they must fast from oil three full days before they can take Holy Communion, or at the other extreme, they don't fast at all. They even eat Sunday mornings and go ahead and take Holy Communion. The true meaning of fasting has been lost or reduced to giving up chocolate for Lent. In the same way, Holy Confession, this great sacrament that truly rejuvenates us, for most people it has become a fulfillment of duty, something we need to do now and then. No compunction, no tears, no fear, and in some states and faraway regions, people were never even told about the great necessity of confession. My friends, the word duty does not exist in the Holy Scripture, not even once, at least not in the Greek text, and not even in the patristic philology. The writings of the Church Fathers, that is, the word duty, you will not find, not even once. On the contrary, you'll find this word used excessively in the area of philosophy and philosophical ethics. We often read in our books about duties and rights. The word duty expresses a spirit of heaviness, something that we need to force ourselves, something uh, that I must do, but not necessarily by choice. My brothers and sisters, these things are foreign to the Word of God. This spirit is foreign to the Holy Spirit-filled Christians. In our days especially, Holy Communion has become an act of habit for many of our Christian brothers, even though they may have started out with God, good feelings and good intentions a while back, and their entire spiritual life has been left without a spirit of holiness. All this precisely because we have left our first love. And the epistle continues, and the Lord says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. As you see, this love for Jesus Christ appears to be a very crucial element, very important, and rightly so. This is our life. The fact that it warrants such a heavy punishment, the Lord says, I will remove your lampstand, This shows the seriousness of this first love. This is a dreadful position for someone to be in, and we all need to pay special attention to this and take some self-inventory. This self-criticism and checkup is extremely profitable. When the Lord says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, this means that we need to look into our own heart and take our own spiritual temperature. Because this epistle was read by the bishop of Ephesus just like we read it today. John was the only one that heard it. But the epistle wants all of us to undergo the self-assessment. Much like the bishop of the church of Ephesus. The Lord comes to remind this to us with a little slap, with punishment. To shake us up, to get our attention, to make us see from where we have fallen. And here... We have this need in front of us to question ourselves. We need to ask ourselves where we came from, what do we know, and how do we fare. We need to assess ourselves spiritually. And our only path to salvation, to our return, is the way of repentance. Repent and do the first works. The return to the first works is the proof of true repentance. I must tell you, that this fallen state, if prolonged, becomes very dangerous because it brings forth a spiritual indifference, a spiritual anesthesia, which according to its degree makes it very difficult for a person to bounce back. Here I must confess something to you. Many times I ask myself when when I'm writing these words, when I'm reviewing them and now as I'm telling you, I ask myself, do I have spiritual indifference? By the way, this is not very easy to detect. It is not very easy for me to know if I have this spiritual indifference. If we read a homily of St. John of the Ladder, St. John Climacus, we will be panic-stricken because we will all find ourselves guilty in varying degrees. We all fit this bill, all of us, with no exception. We suffer from this epidemic of spiritual anesthesia. I'm sorry for this assessment, but it is true. And after this punishment comes, if we don't repent, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. As you remember, the seven golden lampstands we were in a certain place and the glorified Jesus was moving among the lampstands, the historical and superhistorical Jesus. These lampstands were tall, individual candle holders and Jesus was easily moving in the midst of these lit candles. And when he says, I will move your lampstand, he means I will physically take it and move it elsewhere, away from here. Now what does this mean? The removal of the lampstand means to become undressed from divine grace, according to St. Andrew of Crete, to become bare, naked from God's grace, to lose the grace. I cannot know, my friends, if I have been stripped from the grace of God. I cannot see it, but others around me can see it. A person cannot always have knowledge of this. Sometimes he can now, what this means to be stripped from the grace of God uh, this is something very dreadful. We pray that God never allows this to us. You may have seen other people, clergy and lady, who have been stripped from God's grace. God took his grace from them, and you can see these people to move about without God's grace. It's an awful sight. I cannot describe this. We could say so much on this, but I'm not able. We can only say that these pitiful people find themselves in a state deserving many, many tears, as we say in Greek. And St. Andrew of Preet continues, When the grace of God is stripped from a person, when the grace leaves, then the demons rush in along with their servants, the evil people, And they introduce a very unstable state in this person or a congregation of persons. In our times, we have some excellent people, very serious people, clerics and lay people. We have some true saints out there. But we also have in our ranks many clerics and lay people deserving these many great tears that we talked about in many lamentations. These people become organized. They flock or they pack together rather. And we're talking about wolves here. The demons rush inside these people. They literally dance inside these people. And it is quite a sight to see the demons dance around these people. These poor people who were stripped from the grace of God. My friends, I say these things and I need to hear these as well. I need to hear them myself. I need to remind myself because we're all need to sound the alarm and ring the bell, sound the trumpet to warn us from these dangerous and miserable plights, these predicaments. These states are a true disaster. In addition, removal of the lampstand can also mean the elimination of the topical or local church, a reality that found its fulfillment in our century after 1900 years of history for all these seven churches of Asia Minor. These churches were indefinitely uprooted until the end of the present age, indefinitely from their geographical space that they held for 1,900 years. This threat of the Lord found its fulfillment in 1922 when all these seven churches were erased from the face of the earth. Where is the church of Smyrna? Where's the church of Ephesus and Theodira? Blossoming churches, beautiful churches. These were some of the most beautiful churches when they were established. Not a single one of the seven exists. This threat, or else I will remove your lampstand. Well, the lampstands have been moved. We need to note that all these things spoken by the Lord here find their application in all the years and time of the church. And the time of the church, and please remember this, the time of the church is the time between the two appearances of Christ, the first and second presence, or parousia of Christ. This time consists of the 1,000 years of apocalypse. Why 1,000? And we'll touch on this a number of times because this is extremely important, especially in the Western Hemisphere. Why a 1,000 years? Because 1,000 is a number used to avoid giving exact information because the second coming of Christ is mysterious. We do not know when Christ will come back, so by using this allegorical number, 1,000, by which a great period of time is meant, without hinting when Christ will come back again, and by this number, the time of the church is represented, and these are the one. Thousand years or the millennium. Again, an allegorical number, just like in the case of the ten virgins. Ten virgins. The number ten, five foolish and five wise. So we don't start thinking percentages. If the number was eight and two, let's say, we could be thinking, well, maybe eight stands for the eighty percent of the people that will be lost, and twenty percent stands for the people that will be uh, saved. The Lord. The Lord says five and five precisely to keep us from drawing any conclusions based on percentages. He says five plus five equals ten. So you will not think along these lines. These are symbolic, allegorical, round numbers. Unfortunately, the Jehovah Witnesses and most Protestants take these numbers literally, and they fall in the heresy of kiliasm or millennialism, condemned by our church in the Second Ecumenical Council of 381. However, we will speak on this at length when we reach that chapter, but for now we need to bring up the point that inside this time frame of the church, all these events will take place, and after 1900 years, in 1922 to be exact, all these seven historical churches were uprooted, From the grounds of the Church of Christ. There's also a third type of movement of a lampstand by which a church does not lose its place. It stays in its geographical area but it loses its orthodoxy and orthopraxia. I must tell you that this has been fulfilled historically as well. Can you tell me where are the blossoming churches of North Africa? Where are they? There's not a single one left. The blossoming churches of North Africa, for whose benefit St. Mark wrote his gospel, St. Peter, rather, through Mark. Where are these glorious churches who wrote some of the brightest pages of church history? The plague of Mohammedanism with the waves of the Arabs leveled these churches. They were not removed to be planted somewhere else, but they lost everything they had. Don't we also have Orthodox churches that lost their Orthodoxy? Sure, we have the Coptic church, the Armenian church, which lost their Orthodoxy, but about the church of the West? What are the Protestants? What is Rome? To stay in your place as a church and to lose your Orthodoxy and orthodoxia this, I believe, is the worst of all three removals of the lampstand that we talk about. I must also add to this, to this last case, and this may seem scary. Let's not think that the lampstand of the Greek church, the local Greek church, and we have historical evidence regarding this. Let's not think that our local Greek church is exempt from this movement. And by this removal of its lampstand, we mean the loss of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And this because all of us are itching to change and modify the very character of our orthodox church, clergy and lady. Obviously, when we say all of us, well, by the grace of God, we still have people from the ranks of the clerics and laymen who are struggling and holding on even by their teeth, attempting to maintain the orthodox identity, the identity of orthodoxy and orthopaxia, orthopaxia being the true orthodox spirituality. My friends, orthodox spirituality is not a luxury. When someone argues why we need to hold on to fasting and he goes on publicly and officially writing fasting off, this is a distortion and mutation of orthodox spirituality. We are in danger of losing our Orthodox spirit, the Orthodox phronima, faith, or doxa, and the Orthodox lifestyle. And I'm very much afraid that someday Central African Orthodox missionaries may have to come to Greece to teach us the Orthodoxy that we gave them a few decades ago. I'm very much afraid of this. This very thing that St. John the Baptist told to the Jews, God can raise children out of these stones and don't say that you're children of Abraham because God can push you aside and he can raise children from the stones for Abraham. Along the same lines, let's not boast about our Greek heritage and the fact that the gospel was written in Greek and the apostles taught in our Greek cities and the golden years of Christianity with the great Greek churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Antioch, Thessaloniki, Corinth, Let's not boast because Christ is quite capable to raise orthodox missionaries from Central Africa who will come here to teach us orthodoxy and orthopraxy. All of this, my friends, in a nutshell, to help us understand the meaning of the Lord's words, be careful because I will come and remove your lampstand, and we can see this chronological fulfillment of Christ's promise Move freely throughout the centuries since he is the eternal God. But you have this in your favor. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You see the same method again that we talked about, correction followed by compliment. Christ used some harsh words for the bishop of Ephesus, but now to keep the bishop from despair, to keep him from kneeling, and saying, I'm lost. Christ comes to help him to soften the blow and lift him up. But you have this good thing going for you. However, this good thing that I'm about to tell you does not exonerate you from the wrong thing which you have. But as a matter of fairness, I must tell you that you have this good element, but take care to correct what's lacking because as I told you, I will remove your lampstand. So take care of this. But you have something good. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, who are the Nicolaitans and what are their works? The Nicolaitans, my friends, whom we will deal with in subsequent verses as well, God willing, were Gnosticizing heretics, and we don't have much information about them, but we will mention what we know. They were Gnosticizing heretics and fruits of the Gnostics, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. Gnostics, in English the G does not get pronounced, so we pronounce it Gnostics or Gnosticism. And it comes from the Greek word knowledge or Gnosis. So the Gnostics who became prevalent during the 3rd century before Christ and they bother the church openly until the 3rd century A.D., they did not die. They still exist and they will exist until the end of history. Gnosticism attempts to create a melting pot Of all the ideologies of all times, the mixing of a little philosophy, a little Christianity, a little Buddhism, a little bit of this, a little of that, idolatry. A smorgasbord of all religions while maintaining the name of Christianity, but a Christianity of maximum distortion. They were classified heretics because they were attempting to give themselves a Christian garb a christian color while their abuse and distortion of the gospel was horrendous this horrendous distortion of the gospel takes place in our days as well freemasonry is a revival of gnosticism and as i have told you very many times the church recognized in gnosticism with its many forms its biggest enemy its greatest enemy The church fought its hardest battles against the Gnostics, much more so than the other heretics. Gnostics are very dangerous because they present many lures used to enchant the faithful and to drag them in the abyss of perdition. It is not a simple heresy with a simple denial of this or that doctrine. It is something else which escapes easy recognition. They tell you that they're Christians, and they have no trouble accepting everything you throw at them. They agree with everything in theory, and in practice, they spurn just about everything. So the Nicolaitans were Gnosticizing heretics, and they were considered to be antinomians. Please pay attention to this, because these are not things that existed back when, but these phenomena repeat themselves in history. As Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. Let's not forget this. We have the same phenomena with new names and new forms, but the substance always remains the same. As Andinomians, these people had a very lax attitude towards idolatry and carnal sins. They were quite open and receptive to elements of idolatry with much ease and they had great difficulty accepting the commandments of God in the area of ethics, spiritual life, and more specifically in the area of bodily sins. They were tremendously loose in this area, saying that the things that the law of God teaches are quite unrealistic and and inapplicable, specifically the subject of abstinence or sexual control. For example, the young men and the young women are called by the law of God to stay pure or abstinent until the day of their marriage, and within the marriage to practice monogamy. Once you are married, you cannot run around with this or that person. Adultery is forbidden, and it's a great sin. Then Nicolaitan said, We cannot accomplish this. It is very difficult. Therefore, we need to use a different strategy. They thought to themselves, Now, what's the purpose of keeping God's commandment? The purpose is to destroy the flesh and to save the spirit. And this is a great falsehood. The purpose of God's commandment is not to destroy the body. When the church tells you to fast, to abstain, or to hold all night vigils, the purpose is not to destroy the flesh. These are not aimed towards the death of the body, but they aim towards the death of the passions. I don't fast to destroy my flesh or something evil. This is Gnosticism, dualism, a Gnosticizing heresy. So they misinterpret it in this manner. Since I need to destroy the flesh, and I cannot accomplish it by abstinence, they thought that the body would be destroyed by abstinence. This is what they believed. So they felt that it was their duty to destroy the body. Plato used to say the same thing. He was a dualist. Actually, all the philosophical systems to this day are grounded in dualism. They accept two forces, one of good and one of evil, and these forces are in constant battle with each other forever battling with each other so for me to destroy the flesh something that i cannot do with the abstinence then i will use the opposite approach not the one of nomia with the law but antinomia against the law and i'm called an antinomian As an antinomian, I will indulge, I will keep eating and drinking and stop a little before my stomach explodes. I will fornicate until I drop, and this is how I will destroy my flesh. Their motto was, the flesh must be abused. This is what they were saying. Para Christe tisarqui thee. The misuse and abuse of the flesh is a must. And by using this method, I will find my happiness and my spirit will become free. Now, you may tell me these things sound preposterous, unbelievable. My friends, let's look around. These things are happening in our days. What was the Woodstock era, the hippie movement? What are the young people today accomplishing with drug use or abuse rather? Are we trying this? This is the best source of my existing and will has. See, I Hold their patient attention to a distinct and not the same importantly the virus, not differentiate them and the patient are or two organism, So he diagnosed that we as one. He will not kill the microorganism, but but even they were trained to make for the microorganism. Do not and we criticize with their Christ is most why knowledge to the full epignosis of the truth. I react, there's a difference here between what he gave him. First, the Now, I believe, of liberation, as the complete misunderstanding of the meaning of freedom goes. There was never a time that had such a sick sense of freedom as our times. I would like to add something to this point. St. Paul, in his time, and I'm returning to the subject of Nicolaitans, please forgive this insertion, but I overlooked this point, and I believe I must give you this information. St. Peter provides his entire second epistle, and Jude, the brother of God, comes forth with his entire epistle to counter the subject of Nicolaitans. When you were reading the second epistle of Peter, did you ever suspect that he had the Nicolaitans in mind? Of course, he does not refer to them by that name, but he does refer to their lifestyle. And I will give you a few verses on this. St. Paul, in its Corinthians epistles, writes, Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but I will not be mastered by anything. And here he's referring to the Nicolaitans who were saying everything is permissible, period. This reminds me of a young man while shopping at a store. I I forget now how the conversation went, but I told him something along these lines, and he asked, why? He acted like you were taking his rights uh, away from him. You were destroying the idol of his freedom. And he said, why? I'm free to do whatever I please. And I responded, the truth is that you are free to do whatever you want, but it's not to your friend. This benefit used because some destructive habit, a terribly destructive habit, needs to be addressed. What is freedom? For me to have rights and more rights, does this help me? What is freedom? What is freedom? This hot topic of freedom and independence. Our adolescents today, they want freedom and progress. We have a lot of every freedom. So, fail is per all the non-play box of angles. And here, too, both for will wo- entice those who this very freedom to do whatever you want of corruption. They are in the like We need to ascend. There's a there, and many there's we will because some of sales. This shows watch standards. Uh, let them explain our guests. If one of us people, we are in hate the words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the churches. Why to the churches and not to the church of Ephesus, since this happens to be a personal epistle to that church? Even though it is a personal epistle, and it is addressing the historical geographical church of Ephesus, it is also addressing the entire church. In other words, all the local churches and asks their attention. He wants them to know what the Spirit says. What Spirit? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, which opens the spiritual ears. and So God can grant us these spiritual ears, enable us to serve our time. This is the Spirit of discretion, which happens to be one of the greater gifts of the Holy Spirit. We will be able to stand in our turbulent times. This is a great need to stay standing in a time unprecedented in its corruption.